Take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 4. Kids, head to the kids' table. While you're turning to Philippians chapter 4, I mentioned small celebrations. One of them was the fact that we could turn off and turn on the lights. It's, it's not a huge thing, but it's, it's a thing, so we want to celebrate it. Other small celebrations. Uh, I, I, Tom told me that every Sunday now I need to get up on Sunday morning and say, don't expect anything done in and name a building because that will mean a whole lot of work gets done in that building. Because I told you last week, don't expect anything in here. And they got a tremendous amount of work done in here. Now, a lot of it's detail stuff, so you might not immediately notice it. But all the trim is up. Uh, the trim piece around the bottom there. The painting and all is done on the walls. They've touched up everything. The doors are all painted on the inside. We've got the doors framed in on the back. Um, the red iron is now gray iron, where the sound treatments are going to go between them. That got painted this week. The game room, a lot of work was done in there. Walk through the uh, serving line, all that got painted this week. Uh, a lot of work actually got done. It's just not the kind of work that helps the sound in here, sorry. Um, they've got a lot of work done in the sanctuary. Uh, Sheetrock is up pretty much everywhere in the sanctuary. They've got it the first coats of mud or the tape and all that on there. So things are happening, just sometimes we don't see it, and they're never happening as quickly as we would like it. So that's a, a small celebration. Uh, another small celebration I want to share with you. For the year 2021, our worship attendance is almost completely flat. Now, that's not usually something you would celebrate, Flat attendance, that means there's no growth. But for the first time since 2006, there's no decline. That's a celebration. That's kind of a big celebration. I'll clap on that one. That's kind of a big celebration. Uh, that, that was something I was looking at this week and thinking about, and, and, and we've actually been talking about it as a staff for a few weeks, how our attendance has been steady for the first time in quite some time. Um, I'm part of a... Uh, a Facebook group where we discuss all sorts of things Baptist-related, and a couple of days ago somebody posted, is it just me, or if you're a small church, you have no children in your church, they all go to the big mega churches in your area. And I got to thinking about that, and my first thought was, yeah. And I thought, no. On any given Sunday, our attendance in church is... 30 to 35 percent children and youth. We don't have that problem here. We have quite an expansive age group. I won't ask you to raise your hand if you're the oldest person in here, but I know who you are. Um, and we go, I'm careful, I'm being careful, I'm not looking at anybody. Um, we go quite a ways up and quite a ways down, and that is a beautiful thing for a church community. And I will say this as well, that that is a testament to having Tom and Amy on staff. Um, I can't sing their praises enough, just, sure, uh, not just as 
associates, but as friends, but as ministry partners. Um, I know there, have been, there has been concern uh, expressed about us spending our savings in order to keep our staff. Y'all, we're not spending our savings. We're investing our savings. We can get one or one and a half percent interest on a few hundred thousand dollars, or we can have children and youth in our church that guarantee a future for our church. I'm going to go invest in children and youth every time and give up one and one and a half percent of interest. And then uh, finally, a small celebration. Uh, I was looking back through, uh, let's see, Nadine, if you're watching this, yes, I still have your little book. Um, I haven't torn it up, and I will get it back to you, I promise. But I've been reading this. This came out at our centennial in 2006. Most of y'all probably remember these. If you have one of these, a spare one, I would love to have it because Nadine wants this one back. Um, But looking through this, I love history. I love the history of our church. There is much to celebrate in our history, but looking back through... Um, and I, d- I don't want to take up a lot of time with this, but this is a, just kind of a neat, I think it's a neat story. We cleaned out our safety deposit box at Capital One months ago, and there was a map in there that was, was it all of sulfur, Tom? I don't even see Tom. I don't know where he is. Uh, it, it was most of sulfur, but it was, it was primarily the, the west side of sulfur, the, the golf course, except it wasn't the golf course, because this map was from the 40s, I think. John, didn't we bring it to you to, to, to look at? Yeah, uh, I think it was from the 40s. And there where the golf course is supposed to be at the corner of uh, Picard and, is that Sarah or some girl's name? Is it Sarah? Okay. It's, uh, oh, yeah, the Sarah says it's Sarah. Um, yeah, it, it said church, little cut off on the corner and a drawing of the church. And I, I Tom... And I could not figure out why that was a why we had that in our safety deposit box and what it meant to us. Oh well, whatever. Well, I got to looking at this centennial, and we in 1935, and y'all knew this, and I knew Parkview was a church plant of First Baptist Sulphur, but we actually started the Picard Town Mission in 1935. Now, I happened to be at Parkview this week signing Jaden up for uh, uh, driving school, driver's ed, and I asked somebody, and she said, I don't know, but the pastor's here. He'll probably know. He's been here 40 years. Randall, I can't think of his last name at the moment. Um, So she called him in, and he said, yeah, that's where the church started, that corner um, at the golf course, the corner of Sarah and Picard. In 1935, I don't know if we bought the property or what and put the church on it. We actually staffed it, according to this, for 20 years. And in 54, it became its own church. As y'all know, uh, then in 1949, just uh, in the middle there, Reverend Obeer, who was pastor back then, led the church to start Houston River. So we have a legacy of church planting. We haven't done it in a while. Well, the Louisiana Baptist Convention called me a month and a half ago, I guess, um, and I've been slow to, to react on it, but uh, in the past couple of weeks I have, and asked us to sponsor a church plant in Jennings. 
Uh, it'll be started by a guy named Trev Talbert, who is uh, currently, I think he's already moved on, but he was pastor in Kinder, and they have asked him to go and start a church in Jennings. Our sponsorship will, can mean as little as a name on a piece of paper. To start a Louisiana Baptist Convention church, you have to have, a, have an LBC church that sponsors it and says, we'll take this under our, our wing. It can go all the way up to funding, and we will certainly want to send people to help them do things in the community of Jennings. So, to that end, Trev will be here preaching on October 10th for you to get to know him, meet him, and then in our business meeting in October, we will vote on uh, the most basic sponsorship of name on a piece of paper, but I'll also ask you to consider using some of our missions money to help support them, um, probably to the tune of something like $100 a month. Now, you don't think that sounds like a lot, or maybe you think that sounds like a lot. Um, it's the second. It is a lot. As a church planner, 100 bucks a month. For a church planner, that's donuts and coffee every week that month. That's something they don't have to pay for. I, I'm telling you from experience, as a former church planner, every little bit helps. So, we are going to continue those small celebrations of being a part of what God's doing here in Sulphur and now prayerfully in Jennings, if that is your mind, as we vote on that in a few weeks. Uh, but like I said, you'll get to meet uh, Trev that Sunday. So those are small celebrations, things that God is doing that... that Maybe we don't see, maybe they, they don't just show up loudly on our radar, but we need to celebrate those things. There's been a lot of yuck in the last few years, and we can celebrate these small things. All right, to the message this morning. Blessed are the peacemakers. Uh, chapter 4 of Philippians, verses 2 through 9 is where we will be. Now, on the screen, you have pictures of Annie and Fanny. They are not looking at each other because that's the way they would have it. Annie, you know. You've heard of Annie before. We celebrate her every Easter, and we give money in her name in our Annie Armstrong Easter offering. Fanny, you've never heard of, probably. Now, you may have some deep WMU roots, and you remember hearing of Fanny Heck. Fanny Heck. Yes, that's her name. Uh, as a matter of fact, her full name was Fanny Exile Scudder Heck. Uh, as my friend Bart Barber, who used this illustration back in 2017 at the pastor's conference, when he preached on this passage, as he said that Sunday morning, that, 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 that evening preaching it, you're in the Southern Baptist Convention now. Fanny Exile Scudder Heck. I just like saying Fanny Heck. I do. Now, like I said, you don't know her, but uh, you do know Annie. What you probably don't know about both of them is that they were headstrong, determined, self-assured, brilliant, fierce, hardworking, and they loved Jesus and missions. They were instrumental. They, they are probably the reason our WMU became such a, a force for missions. And Well, they are the reason that the WMU became such a force for missions and the 
now International Mission Board and North American Mission Board, back then Foreign and Home Mission Board, grew to the strength that it has now. The problem is they could not stand each other, hated each other. They fought constantly. As a matter of fact, they did everything they could to undermine the position of the other. From writing letters to, to, to whatever they could do, they both wanted to control the WMU and neither of them wanted to compromise. Ever. Because they were both right. There was no need to compromise. They were right. Right? Annie was the recording secretary. We would call them executive director or CEO or something like that now. She was the uh, recording secretary of the WMU from 1888 to 1906 for 18 years. Fanny was the president of the WMU from 1892 to 1899. She quit because she said she couldn't work with Annie Armstrong anymore. And then when Annie Armstrong got so sick she couldn't uh, function any longer as recording secretary, Fanny was re-elected as president in 1906 and served until 1914. So Fanny was there for 15 years, Annie was there for 18 years. They overlapped until they just couldn't work together anymore. Yet, this was the greatest era of health and growth in the history of the WMU and possibly in our two mission boards. As a matter of fact, for some statistics, in 1888, they raised, the WMU raised $43,000 for missions. That was the year that Annie took over as recording secretary. By 1920, which was kind of the tail end of their influence, in 1920, the WMU raised $2.4 million for missions. How in the world did, they, did, did the WMU grow and have such a profound influence on our Southern Baptist missions when all of this was going on? Or maybe another way to ask that is, why did God bless this warring factionalism within the WMU? I mean, these are the two top leaders of the WMU constantly doing this. You would think gridlock would have prevailed and nothing would have ever gotten done. Well, Bart uh, is, has a PhD in history. His particular emphasis is Baptist history. And I agree with him when he said God did not bless Annie and Fanny. He blessed the peacemakers. He blessed the people around Annie and Fanny that were doing the hard work of trying to bring peace and get the job that was to be done, done. Well, who were some of those peacemakers? Well, J.M. Frost was the president of the Baptist Sunday School Board at the time. R.J. Willingham was the president of the Foreign Mission Board. T.P. Bell was the president of, or the recording secretary actually, uh, we'd call them then, of the Home Mission Board. Now, these are people, these three men are guys that these two ladies fought with just as constantly. 
with the occasional piece so they could have some friendly conversation. But these three men were peacemakers. The, the board of the WMU did a lot of the hard work of bringing these two ladies together. At one point, Annie went to a judge to sue Fanny because she wasn't because of something Fanny wanted done that Annie said wasn't in the constitution of the WMU. And so she went to a judge and said, let's get a judge to do this. We'll, we'll stop this now. And the judge told Annie Armstrong, you know, technically you're right. But for the sake of the gospel, for uh, the, the, the sake of your own relationship, can you please approach this issue with Christian charity and unity and move on? You're technically right, but it does not matter when it comes to the gospel. Paul in Philippians 4, 2 through 9, talks about true partners. And what we see in this passage is that true partners work for the mission, the gospel, and to bring peace. Paul talks about it in 4, 2 through 9. Read it with me. It says, I urge... Oop, did it not, is it not working? We've been having trouble with it. Well, I hope you have your own copy of God's Word because it's on the screen this morning. It says, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. The end of this letter, Paul points out, calls attention to, a faction in the church in Philippi. And it's important enough to him to, to include in the letter that there was a problem between Euodia and Syntyche. Now, we have no clue what this disagreement was between them. The, the, the encouragement seems to imply it was over church work. Now, the truth is, the, the, the problem between Annie Armstrong and Fanny Heck was church work. But they had the personality that when they argued about church work, it affected everything. If you didn't agree with them on the church work, they were offended uh, un, uh, unhealingly and you're just a horrible person if you don't agree with me. That was their personalities. But the disagreement, according to the rest of Scripture here, especially verse three and, verses 3 and 4, is the idea that this was a church work issue. 
But imagine Euodia and Syntyche sitting in church. So, you know, you get a letter. Let's put it in our own terms. If we got a letter from, I don't know, pick somebody, the Southern, president of the Southern Baptist Convention. If, if Ed Litton sent us a letter and it was... Uh, Blah, 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 hey, how you doing? These are some things y'all need to concern yourself with, and I'm, I'm glad about this and glad about that, and all right, now work on this, and here's some other issues you need to... By the way, Etta and Lacey, y'all, I urge you two to agree. Whoa. And can you imagine the reader, the one who was up there that Sunday morning going, okay, I remember I'm just reading this. I don't shoot the messenger. I'm just... Quite a shock. Paul, I guarantee you, knew the shock that what they were going to experience when a name was mentioned like this, calling out a name. He never called out a name. He talked about problems. This is happening and this is happening. And he never called out a name in the church. He called out people who had left and moved on. But this was somebody who would have been sitting in the chairs that Sunday morning. And he tells them, I urge you, I urge you, to agree in the Lord. And here is where we get the idea. This was a church issue. This was a gospel issue. I urge you to agree in the Lord. Now, you go all the way back to about 375 A.D., and a fellow by the name of John Chrysostom. He was a, a preacher. As a matter of fact, his last name was a nickname. Chrysostom means golden mouth, golden tongue. He was known to be a great preacher. That far back, he believed that Euodia and Syntyche were the leaders of the church. Remember, this is Philippi. This is where Lydia was the first convert. And it was a group of women that were the first uh, converts to Christianity. And the church started in, their, in her home. And, and she would have been the leader of that house church. And there's, so these are whatever their role was, their title was in the church, these were leaders in the church. So maybe a better uh, example in my earlier, earlier letter from the Southern Baptist Convention president would not have been to Etta and Lacey, though they would be considered leaders in the church. But if it had said, I urge Tom and I urge Michael to agree in the Lord, not just calling out some random church members, but calling out the people on the stage, the people who are doing the leading. Agree in the Lord, it says. That agreement, that agree in the Lord is, is the the phrase, have the same mind. He, Paul has used that in chapter 2, verse 2, when he said, make my joy complete uh, by thinking the same way, having the same mind. He used it again in chapter 3, verse 15. Let all of us who are mature think this way, have the same mind. Verse 19, uh, their end is destruction, their God is their stomach. Uh, their glory is in their shame. They are focused on earthly things. That has the same idea. Uh, they have the same mind or the mind of earthly things. Have this same mind in the Lord. There is room for disagreement. Some of their Annie and Fanny's disagreements were legit. 
Should we spend money over here? Should we do it over there? Should we start this missionary school? Should we spend the money elsewhere? Should our structure as a WMU be this way or should it be this way? Some of them were good conversations to have, but it led not to good uh, unified thinking and planning, but instead it led to division because they wouldn't come together to talk about it and come up with the best plan. There's room for disagreement, but we've got to focus on unity in and for the gospel. We are unified in Christ, but we are also unified for Christ to a lost world. And he says, continues, he says, agreement needs to be in the Lord. If it is in the Lord, if we are in the Lord, unified in Him, we are going to do what Paul has said in previous parts of the book, specifically back in chapter 2, Verse 3, we will do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. We will consider others as more important than ourselves. In the Lord will lead us to look out for others and to put them uh, first. There's only one sentence to the factions in the whole letter. And even in this section where he's talking about it, only one time. I urge, I urge, agree in the Lord. The rest of this paragraph, and the Christian Standard Bible puts the verses 4 through 7 with the uh, verses 2 and 3 where he's talking about the factions. He puts it together. The rest of the paragraph is to the true partners. Y'all, this is an example right here for us, for you and for me. We have got to focus less on the troublemakers and more on developing and growing as peacemakers. The troublemakers won't get a foothold if the rest of us are peacemakers at all times. There won't be anyone to join them. The trouble of one is countered by the peace of 120. It's when 20 join the one and it's 21 against 100 that the 21 becomes loud. If the rest of us are peacemakers, the troublemakers will not be able to function. Now that's the factions, and that's all he says about it. The rest of the passage is about the peacemakers. The peacemakers are verses in verses 3 through 9. And what we see here, and what we need to understand, is that the church is designed with peacemakers. Work the same way as white blood cells. There are people in the church who are supposed to be there to take the virus, take the, the bacteria, take the, the small bits of attack, and uh, immobilize them before they get started. That's what our white blood cells do. If there's a, anything that gets in our system that's not supposed to be there, it attacks it early. It doesn't wait until it's a festering wound. It starts immediately. And that is the idea of these helpers in, the, uh, in this passage. They work before things get bad. Mr. Rogers was asked, yeah, Fred Rogers, was asked, I believe after 9-11, how he dealt with children in light of 9-11. What do you say to kids to, to make them feel better about this catastrophe that's going on? And his response to, to the adults asking the question and then to children who are seeking answers was, I tell them to look for the helpers. 
in every bad situation, there are people doing the good work of helping everybody else. We, as the church, are called to be helpers. Paul is writing to the entire church in this letter. I urge Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. The rest of you, help them do it. The rest of you, be peacemakers. Now, we need to stop here for just a second and see who in Scripture is the first line of defense in peacemaking, and it's deacons. The office of deacon was started, at least the proto-deacon, the beginning of the deacon, was started in Acts chapter 6, maybe a little further back, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm misremembering now where uh, you have the Jerusalem church and you've got the, the, the Jewish widows and the Hellenistic widows. That I mean, they're all Jews, but there are uh, Israel widows and, and, and Greekish, Greek uh, culture Jewish widows. They're in the church and they're not being treated the same. And it is becoming a faction when it comes time to, to help them and feed them and do ministry to them. And so uh, the church says... Y'all, put aside some people to do the work of bringing peace to these two factions. And that group is the, the, the prototype for what Paul is going to later on call deacons when he sets aside the office of deacons. That was their original role in Jerusalem, to bring peace. That is the role of deacons in the church, to bring peace. Now, sadly, in some churches, the deacons are the source not of the peace, but of the trouble. We don't have that here. We have deacons who want to bring peace. The deacons are the first line of peacemaking in our church. For Paul, it was his yoke fellow, or in, our, in CSB it says, I ask you, true partner. The, the actual word there is yoke fellow. Someone who is on the yoke with him, two, two oxen pulling on that same yoke. And then Clement. Clement also, it appears, was in Philippi. They are the first line of peacemaking in Philippi. But he's saying, come alongside them, church. Help them, church. Church, come alongside your deacons to bring peace into the church. Now, this word help is a really interesting word. In, uh, in Luke chapter 2, this word help means conceive, like Mary conceived a baby. In Matthew 24, I think, it is when Jesus was arrested. He says, why did you come out here with a, 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 a group of thugs and, and, and torches to help me, to arrest me? Uh, that word can also mean to take hold of, to, to grab, or in this case it means to aid. Now that's an interesting word to put here. But as I heard Bart say it in that sermon, what that means is in all of those definitions, conceive, arrest, take hold of, or aid, that someone else's problem just became yours. If you're, especially if you're a part of the conception Somebody else's problem just became your problem. If you arrest somebody, a cop arrests somebody, 
then that person just became that policeman's problem. If, if you go out and, and, and you think, hey, it's, it's a baby squirrel, I can catch it, and you try, well, you take hold of that squirrel, that squirrel's problem just became your problem. And if you've ever grabbed hold of a squirrel, you know what I'm talking about. It's a problem. It, that is now yours. Well, when you help helpers, that person's problem just became your problem. But it has to be that way. And, and you're already thinking, well, I don't need any more problems. You know what? You're right. But then you are thinking of others as more, uh, thinking of yourself as more important as, than others. I don't need that problem right now. I know you don't. But you need to think of others more than yourself. Well, I don't want to meddle in their business. It's not meddling. As a matter of fact, you have no option of not getting involved or not meddling when it comes to the gospel and church unity. It is your responsibility as helpers, as peacemakers, to be involved in keeping the peace. Gospel unity is at stake here. That is Paul's, uh, the rest of verse 3. These women who've contended for the gospel, uh, these co-workers, of, who's, I mean, the, the whole purpose here is the gospel. You must get involved, and you must meddle. But it is very specialized meddling. It's important meddling. But it is meddling that now Paul gives us some descriptors of what it looks like to meddle. First of all, he says to rejoice. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord, Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Both rejoices there are in the imperative. And by the way, if you go back to verse 3, where it says, I ask you, my true partner, to help, to help is imperative. But rejoice is in, in, in the imperative in all situations, at all times. Yes, I said what I said, Paul is saying. At, in all situations, at all times. Rejoicing is preparation. If there is joy in the Lord today, if we are choosing to rejoice today in our situation, then tomorrow when we have someone else's problem become our problem, we are already rejoiced up. We are ready for that because we have spent the time to rejoice prior to that. Or maybe you just need to rejoice that you are called to make peace for the sake of the gospel. You get to heaven someday and you say, man, I wish I had done more. And, and you get to hear the Lord say, yeah, but you remember that time that there was trouble brewing in First Baptist Sulphur. And the unity of the church was at stake, and the gospel message was at stake, and you did not want to meddle, and yet you knew that you needed to be a peacemaker, and you stepped in. You served the gospel that day. Rejoice that you get to do that. He goes on, don't just rejoice, but be gentle. As a matter of fact, the way he puts it is, let your graciousness be known to everyone. Be known is the imperative here. But graciousness is actual, actually gentleness here. Be gentle. The very nature of peace, peacemaking, is gentleness. Nobody goes to Niagara Falls and says, now isn't that gentle and peaceful? They just don't. You, you go to a, a little stream where there's a little waterfall and you go, now that's nice. I could get under that and play under it and drink some of that, and that'd be good, and splash it up on me. But you don't do that at Niagara Falls. There's nothing peaceful about it. 
There's nothing gentle about it. It's impressive, it's big, it's massive, it's mighty, but it's not peaceful and gentle. We come in with gentleness in the peacemaking process. And this will inevitably involve the patient bearing of abuse. You're going to get beat up when you take hold of the squirrel. Or you insert yourself into an argument. Or you arrest somebody. It's rarely going to be an easy thing. You'll be attacked for meddling, but the peacemakers must be gentle. Paul goes on and says, don't worry. Be prayerful. Don't worry. Be prayerful. I think Bobby McFerrin got it wrong. He said, don't worry, be happy. Jesus says, don't worry, be prayerful. And then that's going to lead to happiness. I mean, that's the end result. But don't worry, be prayerful. He says, the Lord is near. This is both time and location. The Lord is near, so be gentle. This little phrase, the Lord is near, actually pulls on the sentence that has already been stated and then uh, gets us ready for the sentence that's coming. It, It does both. But the Lord is near. If he's near in time, like he's coming back soon, and he's near in location because he lives in our hearts, then why would we worry? Why does it matter today when Jesus is coming back tomorrow? Do we know he's coming back tomorrow? No. But do we know he's not? No. The Lord is near. And oh, that's easy for you, Paul. You, Paul, you're super Christian. No, Paul is in prison writing this. When he wrote about rejoicing in all situations, he was in prison. A peacemaker lays the anxiousness of the mission on Jesus. Jesus, this is hard. And Jesus says, I know, so is the cross. I know, so is the beating. You ever had a crown of thorns pressed on your head? And he doesn't do that. He doesn't throw that back up in our faces. But we should. If I, this is my cross. I, I, I pick it up. If, if being a peacemaker were easy... Paul would not have spent this time on all these characteristics of the person who is a peacemaker. He knew it was hard. So don't worry. Be prayerful. Don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition. Don't worry is the imperative there. Through prayer and petition petition with thanksgiving, present. There's another imperative. Present, Present your requests to God. Pray boldly. Pray for peace peacemaker. Pray for joy for you and for those involved. Pray for gentleness that you will handle this in a gracious, gentle way. Pray for the factions involved. Pray for the other peacemakers as they come along. And then when you pray boldly, give thanks for the coming peace and your part in it. If the peacemakers do their job, there will be peace in the church. And then Paul rattles off a list in verses 8 and 9. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, morally excellent, praiseworthy, dwell on these things. There's your imperative again. In the helping process peacemaker, you must dwell on these things. You must dwell on the truth of the situation. What is the truth in this problem? 
Who is true? Who isn't? That's your focus. Not who's the personality, not who's the loudest, not who's the leader, but what is the truth? Dwell on the truth of the situation. Dwell on honor in the situation. How do we do this in such a way that both sides are honored as much as they can be? Pray for justice, uh, or dwell on justice for the situation. How can we do the things that will be just? Right? Whatever is just, dwell on that. Dwell on the purity on purity during the situation. The temptation for any peacemaker is going to be to get involved in one side or the other. And therefore their purity of a peace as a peacemaker will be destroyed. Pray uh, dwell on purity for the two sides that their reasoning at least if not their actions is pure. Dwell on loveliness around the situation. It's hard to find loveliness in a church fight. But if we are dwelling on loveliness, if that is what we are looking for, then I believe the Lord will help us find it. Dwell on commendability from the situation. Whatever is commendable. Whatever a peacemaker can say to the two sides to say, yes, you're right. I commend you for handling this particular little bit correctly. And you as well. You did this right. Find what is commendable. Dwell on, the moral, dwell on moral excellence throughout the situation that everyone will be doing what is right in this situation. And dwell on praiseworthiness after the situation. Lord, you're going to take care of this. Lord, this is a mess right now, but by your grace, by your strength, by your wisdom, the peacemakers, the helpers in the church will come through on this and they will bring unity in and for the gospel. Y'all, this is simply chapter 2, verse 3, put into action. Believing the best about other people where you can. There's my caveat. This is putting others before yourself, and that's not a where you can. There's no caveat on that one. But believing the best about someone, we go into it with that belief. But remember, the Philippian situation, the situation that Paul is writing about and to, involved two strong sisters in Christ. These women have contended for the gospel at my side. Their names are in the book of life. These are strong believers who are working for the gospel that is their intent. They disagree. They disagree strongly. Their personalities, their sin nature has taken over at some point and they are fighting about it. But their purpose is the gospel. What we don't have in this situation, and we often do have in situations in the churches, is evidence of a wolf in sheep's clothing. Neither of these ladies is an unbeliever or a very carnal believer, a backslidden believer, whatever you want to call them, who is fighting for the sake of fighting. Instead, they are here for the gospel. There's no wolf in sheep's clothing here. Wolves, according to Scripture, get forcibly removed from the sheep pen. The peacemakers don't come and try to, tape, uh, try to tame the wolf. 
The wolf gets taken out so that it cannot kill and hurt and maim the sheep. The wolves don't get coddled, ignored, or excused. They're removed. And Paul ends the, the chapter by saying, or ends this by saying, this is what you, and I say to us today, this is what we've learned from Scripture. This is what we've received from the Holy Spirit. This is what we have heard in sermons. And this is what we see in Paul and other believers. Peacemaking. God has never called a one of us to be a troublemaker. Has never called a one of us to create dissension in a church. He has called all of us to be peacemakers. That's what Scripture tells us. That's how the Holy Spirit leads us. That's what our sermons should be telling us. And when we read Paul and we see strong Christians around us, right? Who's your example two Sundays ago? That should be what we see. And then the result of peacemakers, we see in verses 7 and 9. If you're an astute student of God's Word, you saw that I skipped verse 7 and you thought, he shouldn't have skipped verse 7. You're right. And I only did it for a minute. Verse 7 says, the peace of God will guard you. We get a part of God. We get some aspect of Him. We get an internal and internal knowledge that passes understanding. The peace of God will guard you. But then at the end, he flips it. And he says, the God of peace will join you. So we don't just get a part of God, but we do. But we get the whole thing. What's better, a piece of cake or the whole cake? The whole cake. Unless you have a gallbladder issue, then not so much. That's a different story, though. Um, the, 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 the whole cake is better. And we get all of God. We get that internal knowledge that passes understanding. But when the God of peace joins us, we get an external presence that proves insurmountable. Imagine the little boy being picked on by the neighborhood kids. And then the big brother shows up behind him. I'm talking about the big brother. What do the neighborhood kids do? They run. Because that big brother is insurmountable even in their numbers. Because they know he is stronger than all of them. When we rejoice, when we uh, are gentle, when, when we don't worry but we pray and present our requests to God, when we dwell on all of these things and we do what we have learned, received, heard, and seen, God shows up. God shows up in our church. If you aren't Euodia and Syntyche, or if you aren't Fanny or Annie, and I mean if you're not one of the two factions in the situation, you are a peacemaker. In every faction, it doesn't matter who it is, the rest of us are peacemakers. Especially if you're a deacon with the high calling to not be a Euodia, Syntyche, Annie, or Fanny. Deacons are expressly told not to do these things, not to be involved, but instead be a peacemaker. But the truth is, you cannot have peace nor reconciliation without Jesus Christ. One final story 
Uh, a lot of y'all know that uh, I drive Uber on, the, on Friday and Saturday nights a lot to, to well, to pay bills, um, you know, house and stuff. And one of the people I picked up a few weeks ago, I had picked up a, a group from an, a group of guys from an Air, Airbnb. They had already been drinking a little bit. They planned all more of it. It was a big group, five or six guys. And a little later, I went back and picked up one single guy from that same Airbnb. He uh, had already been drinking more. He wasn't, wasn't falling out drunk. He was, he was sensible. And, and the standard questions are, where are you from? I don't know why they ask me that. I'm driving here in Lake Charles. But anyway, that's, that's one of the questions. And is this your full-time job or you have a day job? And he asked me the second one, and I, I said, no, I'm a pastor at First Baptist Church. He said, oh, okay. Let me ask you a question. It's always a bit worrisome. You just never know where this is going. He said, now where I was picking him up from was down on Lake Street, about halfway between 210 and McNeese Street. So gives you an idea. They're along, I think it's a contraband bayou that runs right, right by this Airbnb. And I was taking him to the casino. So seven-minute drive maybe. That's about all the time I have. Let me ask you a question. Um, what is the one thing you could share with me to convince me to believe the way you believe? Uh, I said, wow, that's a really good question. Um, and I thought for a, a few seconds, and my answer went something like this. I said, there's not one thing I can share with you. It's all about faith. That's what our relationship with the Lord is. It's, it's, it's built on faith. I mean, I can, I can share a number of proofs, apologetic proofs, you know, this, you know, the existence of God, that sort of thing, but there's not one thing. I said, honestly, it would have to be a relationship. We have to talk a lot about how the Lord has changed me and, 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 and that sort of thing and talk about a lot of Scripture. I said, there's, there's just not one thing I can share with you that will convince you. And he said, and I'm, I'm thinking, I've blown it. I'm like, this guy was looking for that, that one answer, and I just, and he said, uh, wow. Wow. I really appreciate that answer. He said, I, I've asked other people that before, and the, the answer that I get is always, well, if you don't trust Jesus, you're going to hell. Well, clearly that had not convinced him. That was not the one statement that would convince him. Now, there's a lot of lesson here that I don't have time to go into because I'm already out of time and how to talk to people uh, about Jesus. And it wasn't like I planned this and went into it thinking, oh, this is the way I'm going to do it. This was just what was like thrown at me. I had to swing, it and, swing at it and hit it or strike out one or the other. But after a, a, few more, a couple more minutes of talking, again, we didn't have long, he, he, he said, I, I said, I think one of the things I would tell you is that God loves you very much and he wants a relationship with you. That was kind of where I came down on what's the one thing I could tell him. And his response to that, and we were actually beginning to pull up into the casino area at that point, 
it was, well, I served in Afghanistan or Iraq, I can't remember, and he said, I've killed a lot of people. Just stood there and shot them in the face. I, I don't think I can, that, that's something I can never move beyond. Okay, well, he goes on for a minute about something else, and then we get to the door, and he starts to get out. And he said, well, thanks again. That was a great answer. I appreciate that. And I said, hey, one more thing I could leave you with. There's nothing you've done that God can't forgive you for. Nothing. He said, well, thank you. I, I, that's, that's hard to believe. And I said, I know. I know it is, but believe it. The chances of me ever seeing that guy again are right around zero. I don't know what's going to come from it. What I do know about his life is that he will never have peace about what went on in the military until he has Jesus. He'll never know peace. We will never know peace in our church until we are all followers of Jesus and we are all living for Him. There's no peace without reconciliation. There's no reconciliation without Jesus. So that's why we don't coddle wolves. We remove them. It's, it's why we work with believers to bring peace and unity. But all that can only be done with Jesus. And maybe this morning, you have something in your life you think God can't forgive me for. I can never know this kind of peace. You'll certainly never know peace in church. Because we're going to talk about peace and joy and all this stuff that without Jesus, it's just going to frustrate you. Not make you feel good. It's going to make you angry and bitter because you don't have it. But you can have it through Jesus Christ knowing that you're a sinner, that we've all done it, that God sent His Son to die for you while you were still a sinner. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. If you will confess Him with your mouth and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. If you trust Jesus for your salvation, you can have peace. Believer, church member, if the gospel, if Jesus is our focus, we can have peace. And those small celebrations that I talked about at the beginning grow and grow and grow into huge celebrations as we reach sulfur with the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I pray for peace. But more than for peace itself, I pray for the peacemakers in our church. May their tribe increase. May I be a peacemaker long before I'm a troublemaker. And Lord, where we dig up trouble, may we be convicted of that. May the peacemakers come along in joy and gentleness, in prayer and boldness, dwelling on what is best, dwelling on others, dwelling on Jesus, and be the peacemakers in our church. Euodias and Syntyches and Annies and Fannies are going to come along, but Lord, if we are being the peacemakers, we will see you bless our church 
Not because of trouble, but in spite of trouble. And God, I pray that we will be a church of peace and unity for the gospel. With the mission set before us of reaching our community and the world for Jesus. May we do it by your strength and in your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning, if you don't have peace, you can have it. Tom is at the back of the Welcome Center. If you would just like to know how in the world you could have the peace I talked about, he would love to share that with you. Have a deacon in the back who would talk to you about that as well. Maybe you're watching online and you want to send a, a message to the church through Facebook or email us. Uh, admin at fbcsulfur.org is our email address or come by, whatever. We'd love to talk to you about that. But you can have peace this morning. We because of believers who are called to be peacemakers, can have peace as a church. Let's worship this morning the God of peace as we stand, as we sing, and let Him work on our hearts this morning.